You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, fishermen, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, kids, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles of rocky shorelines, sandy seafloors, rocky banks, and deep-sea canyons, and maritime artifacts. I'll just add, we have some scientists out at sea right now in the sanctuaries that are doing some remotely operated vehicle surveys on some of those deep sea habitats, except it's been pretty windy, so I don't know how successful successful they've been yet, but I'll certainly report back any exciting findings. I'm so excited. I have a really full show today, and we have two really great guests. We have two different topics, so it's a two-part show. Um, on the first half of the show, we're going to be talking with Dr. Craig Downs of the Hereticus Environmental Lab in Virginia. This past year, while attending the International Ocean Film Festival in San Francisco, I saw a film called Reefs at Risk that shocked me. And I had to bring the scientist on the air to talk about his findings and what's happening with the new findings about the impact of some sunscreen chemicals on coral reefs and fish reproduction. So you'll definitely want to stick around for that. On the second half of the show, we're going to take a deep dive into some local beach ecology and natural history with Dr. Karina Nielsen of the Ocean and Estuary Science Center at the Romberg Tiburon Lab at San Francisco State University. We often go to the beach and enjoy it this time of year, and there's a whole other world going on beneath the sand that I'm really excited to dive into and talk about with Karina. So stick around. We've got a full show. We'll be back in a minute. All right, we're back. You're tuned into Ocean Currents here on KWMR. And on the phone with this, I have Dr. Craig Downs of the Hereticus Environmental Laboratory in Virginia. So, Craig, welcome. You're live on the air. Thank you, Jennifer. Hi. Thanks so much for calling in today. So, you are an ecotoxicologist. Can you tell us what that is? So, uh, sure. Um, ecotoxicology is the study of uh, of genobiotics and the toxicological pathologies that they manifest in non-human species. So there are aquatic ecotoxicologists, marine ecotoxicologists, wetlands ecotoxicologists. So we study how organisms respond to poison. Which we have quite a bit of these days, don't we, in the environment? Yes. So your lab... Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Your lab is based in Virginia. How did you get studying coral environments and sunscreen? Um, I used to work for U.S. NOAA. Um, I was uh, a scientist in the Coastal Center for Environmental Health and Biomolecular Research in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, I was kind of drawn away 
during the biotech boom in, in San Francisco, and so I left U.S. NOAA, and uh, the, the biotech technology was so successful, um, we went ahead and started a nonprofit because we were having so many pro bono requests, and we were having a lot of fun doing that kind of work. And uh, after, ooh, I think, 15 years, we're, we're still going strong, doing a lot of work and having a big worldwide impact. Well, the the film that I saw, Reefs at Risk, I know is just a snapshot of the issue we're talking about today. But I, I think originally you were contacted by the National Park Service to look at why their corals are dying. Is that correct? And how you got onto the sunscreen issue? Yes, exactly. So um, back at when I was working for U.S. NOAA, I worked a lot on the molecular and cellular pathologies of coral bleaching. And this was in 1998 when the first big bleaching event had hit the Florida Keys, and we published a number of, I think, really cool scientific papers, and we found out that many of of these cellular markers were also amendable to um, profiling uh, toxic responses of coral and other coral reef organisms to a number of different xenobiotics, a number of different chemicals. And we learned how to nestle that technology in a larger field called forensic, and that is the um, examination of um, characterizing the, be- the, uh, the behavior of an environment or ecosystem and as a response to a, a pollutant, um, like sunscreen pollution or oil pollution or heavy metal. Um, and, and so we were asked to figure out what was killing the reefs around the Virgin Islands National Park. And our, our, the, the one that was really given our head a, a scratch was Trunk Bay. And that's considered the most idyllic um, beach area in the National Park. It's, it's on the 94-cent uh, U.S. Postal Stamp. Um, there were no other anthropogenic activities in the watershed. And because... This was a, um, it, it has a snorkel, uh, a, a, a snorkel pathway. Uh, boats aren't allowed in this bay. So the, the, the only thing really getting into this bay was, was people. And it had decimated over the last 10, 15 years, a huge Elkhorn Reef um, had died, 95% dead in front of the science coordinator's home. And in the park, the, there was no new coral recruitment. All the corals were slowly dying. Uh, we would do this, uh, this assay called a laceration regeneration assay. That's where you take a, a one-centimeter uh, biopsy uh, from a coral tissue, t- uh, take a picture of it with a ruler, and then over time measure how fast it heals. And in five years, none of the wounds healed. So we were, we were getting pretty frustrated because we had figured out uh, what was causing the death of all these other places, all these other beaches and coral reefs in the, in the Virgin Islands National Park, except for this one. So we were uh, complaining to ourselves in a grocery store on, uh, on St. John Island, and a uh, Rastafarian fellow overheard us complaining, and he kind of told us in disgust that, you know, he couldn't believe we, we couldn't figure it out. It's like, it's the people. And I go, what do you mean it's the people? He goes, so he told us to go to the bay, 
after four thirty, five o'clock, after all the tourists have gone, and if there's a doldrum day, he says, you'll see the, the, the oil slick on the bay. And so we went the next day, and it was a doldrum day, and he was right. Around 5.30, when the sun was setting, the water was beautiful. Um, it scintillated an iridescent red, orange, purple, and blue, and uh, that was because of the oil that was on the surface of the water. And talking to the... Uh, the lifeguard there, he estimated that about 3,000 people showed up on that day. Oh, wow. And, and so that just kind of uh, lit the light bulb, and we sampled the water, and we looked at what sunscreens, what, you know, what, how are sunscreens made, uh, what was the ingredients in the sunscreens. And the one thing that showed up the most in our chemical analysis was the chemical oxybenzone. And... From there, we started to do to do uh, toxicity studies of coral planula um, in embryonic fish and sea urchin embryos, uh, macroalgae, and we found that oxybenzone is quite toxic. Probably one of the most toxic chemicals in um, in in sunscreen. Uh, it's not the only one, but it's, it is one of the most toxic. So uh, we started measuring uh, oxybenzone levels. Elsewhere in um, in the Red Sea in Hawaii, and our findings in Hawaii took um, <clears throat> took a lot of people by surprise. Uh, we were surprised, but the folks in Hawaii are kind of desperate for an answer of why their reefs are degrading and not coming back. And that's kind of the process that we're seeing is that you'll see a punctuated mortality event like an El Nino induced bleaching event, and you'll see a lot of coral dying off, but it never comes back. And that's kind of what we saw in the Virgin Islands. That's what we see in the Florida Keys. It's the not coming back um, that is the big problem. Um, We get coral mass deaths historically, geologically. It's not all that infrequent. And and actually, there's a, a fairly well-argued hypothesis that these mass bleaching events are necessary for sustaining uh, high levels of biodiversity. So it's, it's like a tree falling in a forest. It creates a meadow. The biodiversity goes up, and you get this successional restoration back to the climax forest. That's what we think happens in many places around the world where you get these mass um, mortality events. The corals will come back, Nowadays, we don't see them coming back, so there's no recruitment. And what's causing that recruitment, that lack of recruitment? And we think it's land-based sources of pollution. It's, it's, it's sunscreen pollution, it's uh, pesticides, fertilizer, algal blooms, sewage. Um, so every geographic location is, is unique and has its own pollution profile signature. Mm-hmm. And you need to figure out what each one of those locations, what the pollution profile signal, signature is so that you can go in and mitigate it. Uh, most people like to wave a magic wand and say it's, it's climate change, it's ocean acidification, it's, it's, you know, it's all sewage. Or it's, and it's, it's usually multiple stressors in a given area, and you just have to figure out which one they are and what the relative contribution of those stressors are to that ecosystem. Um, 
So I wanted to jump in here. The study sure. that came to um, understand that oxybenzone is very toxic and it is causing the corals not to reproduce, um, so they can't come back. They've been knocked down by, could be multiple stressors, but they're not coming back. And I understand that uh, the industry that uses oxybenzone, a specific company, tried to reproduce the study, and they had the same results. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And, and what are the implications for a company discovering that, oh, this is this is happening? Um, the, the implications are actually the consequences. I think that guy got fired. Oh. Um, so it, it's really unfortunate. But in 2016, there was the International Coral Reef Symposium in Honolulu, Hawaii. It happens once every four years somewhere in the world where there's a coral reef. And, and this year just happened to be in Honolulu. And this uh, person from uh, L'Oreal was there, and he came up to me and says, I'm, I'm here in Hawaii at this conference because of you. I had no idea who it was. And he said he worked for, for L'Oreal, and he says, we repeated your work, and we saw something very similar to what you saw. And he, um, his company contracted uh, the Monaco Laboratory in, in the Principality of Monaco, uh, with a very famous coral reef scientist, but he's scientist is a coral scientist, but not an ecotoxicologist. And they they did do exposures in adult coral with oxybenzone, another UV chemical called avobenzone, and a third UV SPF chemical called uh, nanotized zinc oxide. And in all three of them, they saw induction of coral bleaching. And <clears throat> He told me, he, says, he said that what they were planning to do was stop all production of products containing oxybenzone. I'm like, well, why? Why would you do that? Because we see the writing on the wall. You know, their industry knows that there are definite toxicities with humans uh, associated with oxybenzone. It causes contact dermatitis. It causes urticaria. Um, and it... It also causes birth defects. There, it's also an endocrine, endocrine disruptor as well. Can you talk about that in terms of the fish genders? I, I was learning about yeah. how this is acting as a way to change fish from males to females, or male fish are growing female gonads. And is that, so, yeah. is that around all oceans or just coral reefs? I'm just thinking about the larger scale beyond coral reef impacts, and oxybenzone is going into the water everywhere. It would be in all waterways where oxybenzone is a contaminant or a pollutant. Um, you know, there's a difference between contamination and pollutant. Contaminant means it's just there, but you don't know if there is an adverse effect. Um, when a chemical is a pollutant, it's there, and you know it's at a level where it has a toxic effect. Um, in Vancouver, um, Canada, uh, I guess... Tubing has now become a very popular pastime um, in these blue ribbon rivers uh, for trout fishing. And in the last six, eight years, they've noticed that all the species in those rivers have declined. Uh, not just the trout, but the mayflies, caddisflies, um, crawdads. Um, and they're now coming to the conclusion, or at least generating data that, that allows them to come to the conclusion that um, these tubers, and, and, and 
on some of these rivers, they, they get up to 1,200 to 1,800 people a day. And they sit in these inner tubes, these flotation inner tubes, and most of the time they just spray themselves down with aerosol sunscreen, and about 50% of that sunscreen doesn't get on them. It gets on the water. And uh, they, they think that the sunscreen pollution is having a major impact on, on trout populations there. In, in other places, uh, more inland, like Kentucky and Tennessee, um, West Virginia, um, they are also seeing uh, drops in species where this new popular tourism activity has, has really taken hold on that river. And one of the pathologies that they're noticing, like in some of the bivalves, is that they're turning all female. Hmm. And you can Google that, you know, all around the U.S. with like large mouth and smallmouth bass populations that in many rivers they're seeing a dominant ratio of female to male. And it should be about one to one. Well, and I'm just... Go ahead. ...are seeing all female. So if it's having an impact on fish populations and humans are putting this on our bodies too, this has got to be a contaminant for humans as well. Can you talk a bit about, so we have sunscreen on our skin, and sometimes they say, wait 15 minutes before going in the water, and I believe that's about the effectiveness of being a sunscreen versus sloughing off into the water, and it's going to slough off no matter what because it's oil-based. Well, there's oil in it, but there's other ways it's absorbed into our skin and getting into the waterways. Can you talk about how... People in the middle of the country that aren't even near a shoreline are, if they're wearing sunscreen with this chemical in it, how it's getting so, into waterways and interior ways. It, it's calculated about 8% of the oxybenzone on your skin per hour gets absorbed into your body. Um, we, can, we, we, actually did this, we actually did this test. We, we put sunscreen on uh, oxybenzone sunscreen on our arm. And 20 minutes later, we were able to detect it in our urine. Um, it, other groups have actually published this, these studies. And they've, they've seen the same thing. Within 20 to 30 minutes of application of an oxybenzone sunscreen, you can, you can detect it in your urine. I think it was 96.8% of the population of the U.S. has oxybenzone contamination in the urine, which means it's contaminating their, their whole body. Um, it's fat-soluble, and so there are studies showing that uh, women who are breastfeeding pass the oxybenzone uh, over to their infant when they breastfeed, uh, and concentrations of this breast milk can be fairly high in the parts per billion. And we see toxic effects, ecotoxic effects with sea urchins and fish, not humans, down as low as, as the parts per trillion. The levels of just being exposed to oxybenzone, and that's just one of the industrial chemicals that contaminate our bodies, is pretty high. You can, you can, but it's not just sunscreens that can contaminate you with oxybenzone. It's also the water you drink and the food you eat. Um, a number of studies have shown that um, municipal tap water can be contaminated with oxybenzone, especially those municipalities that don't first. Um, clean the water with an activated carbon filter. Interesting. I didn't know that. I'm going to look into that. (laughs) So, uh, and then, you know, because um, most subsistence fish, you know, marine cod, pelagic, codfish, tuna, 
Uh, they're swimming in the ocean, and oxybenzone concentrations are, are getting fairly high in the general oceans. We can detect it as far north as Barrow, Alaska. Wow. Um, our subsistence fish are now becoming significantly contaminated, as in parts per billion. Um, not parts per trillion, but parts per billion oxybenzone. Wow. Um, the Ministry of Fisheries in both Spain and Portugal published studies showing the contamination of commercial subsistence fish. And they kind of said, oh, it's only in the, in the parts per billion. It doesn't pose a danger. But, you know, what if you're a population that eats fish every day or every other day? Um, your oxybenzone levels are going to be fairly high. You're just, you're just going to be constantly exposed to it. The biggest source isn't swimmers, it's sewage. Because, again, either you put it on you and you urinate it out or you shower and it comes off in the shower. And it all goes through the sewage and then it ends up in our rivers or lakes and our oceans. Got it. And it's, it's a lot of oxybenzone. I mean, I heard that one company buys and uses 100 million tons of oxybenzone. I find that incredulous and hard to believe. But EPA back in 1992 or 1994 showed that um, oxybenzone was being um, imported into the U.S. at, at over a million pounds per year. Um, so it's it might not be 100 million tons, but it is quite a bit of oxybenzone, and all of it is going to go someplace in the environment. Craig, I'm sorry to jump in here. We have five sure. minutes left in the show, and this is really, really interesting information. And, and we now know there's this is a very toxic chemical. It's having extreme impact around coral reefs around the world, which are facing a lot of other threats, too. And the coral um, coral reefs and the environment are really supportive of a very important uh, tourism value. I think it's $9.9 trillion. And it seems that the economy and money can get the attention of lawmakers. Can you just talk, we just have three minutes left now, to just talk about what's happening. I know there's some big positive changes that have happened as a result of this. these results being shared. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that are happening and how people can find out more about um, legislation or ways to get involved in helping to get rid of this chemical? Sure. So um, a, a lot of places are, are looking to ban products that contain oxybenzone. Hawaii has been the first um, to pass legislation banning products in 2021 in sunscreens and in other cosmetic products. But other countries like Bonaire have also passed similar laws. Uh, Mexico has a, a regulatory code where you're not allowed to use oxybenzone as well as six other SPF chemicals um, products in their um, other other nature reserve. Uh, the thing that the, the the normal citizen can do to help mitigate this pollution is, we think, to wear sunwear, sun clothes. Um, sun clothes are much better protector against UV radiation, both UVB and UVA. And this is what we're telling everybody. If you put on a sun shirt, you've reduced the need of sunscreen lotion by over 50%, which means that drops the pollution load into a water body by over 50%. So we get more people wearing sun shirts, um, you know, 
guys or gals can can also wear like uh, you know trunks, um, something to cover up more. That that means more. I mean, that means less sunscreen to be used, and that's that's what we recommend. Um, you can also use sunscreens that don't contain oxybenzone. You just have to look at the ingredient label, and there's a lot of them out there that are now labeling themselves oxybenzone free. And those are the ones we suggest you take a look at if you, if you need to use sunscreen. And we do recommend that you, you do wear a sunscreen when you need it. So but there's I, lots I, of ways to cover up with hats, the clothes. Hats, clothes. I mean, it's, I mean, a whole bunch of fashion magazines are now putting out articles, Vogue, Travel, Leisure, Allure. Um, uh, this, this spring, um, all the textile companies, all spring catalog clothing companies, had um, uh, sunscreen that doesn't wash off campaigns in their catalog, from J. Crew and L.L. Bean to Land's End, Under Armour. Um, so it's it's really kind of big, become a very strong campaign there. That's fantastic. Is there any national legislation that people should be aware of? And um, speaking up on a larger level, besides taking an individual choice, are there ways people can do something on a larger level? I, I think at the larger level is is just choosing what what you buy has a huge impact um so just uh look at your ingredients level i mean ingredients in in the sunscreens that you purchase uh you know buy sunwear clothing to protect yourself um you know uh, i think that's probably going to be the biggest um biggest effect that that a normal person can do and to share the word with other people i'll add um, since oh, yeah. I've learned yeah. about this, I've been spreading the word big time because it's such a easy thing to do. We all need to wear sunscreen, especially special times of year. And uh, if we can buy the right one or cover up, we can help the ocean. Craig, I want to just say thank you so much for calling in. I'm sorry to cut you short. I've really enjoyed talking with you and um, reading about your work and the implications and changes that it's resulting in. So thank you so much for sharing the results to larger audiences and um, keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care. Take care. To learn more about the Hereticus Environmental Lab, you can go to www.h-a-e-r-e-t-i-c-u-s-lab.org. You can also Google Craig Downs sunscreen, and there are wonderful articles that are online talking about this. So I encourage people to read up on it, share it with other people, and there are some fantastic other alternatives out there. The Environmental Working Group is a great source for sourcing sunscreen. Um, It gives you a good rating based on the chemicals and tells you which ones are in there. So check out ewg.org. We are going to take a short, short break. This is KWMR and Point Ray Station. And when we come back, we're going to take a deep dive into beach ecology with Karina Nelson. So stay with us. And I'm thrilled to have Dr. Karina Nielsen in the lab, in the lab, in the studio with me on science, radio. We're all here. 
So let me bring you up. You're on mic three. Welcome, Karina. You're live on the air. Hi there. So great to have you. Pleasure to be here today. I've wanted to have you on for many years because you've been involved with beach ecology for a long time. And I finally caught up with her this year and said, I need to get you on the air. So thanks for coming in. Oh, you're welcome. It's, it's great to come here and talk about beaches. So the Estuary and Ocean Science Center is a relatively new name for the formerly known as Romberg Tiburon Center with SF State. What's the new name about? And tell us a little bit about the center. Oh, yeah. Well, we um, we decided to um, um, sort of redefine ourselves a little bit because um, we really focus on the estuary and the ocean. So we decided it would be easier if we just said what we did with our name. And uh, our our mission really it hasn't changed that much. We snapped it up a little bit into a cute soundbite, I think, where our mission is to connect science, society, and the sea for a healthy planet. And I think everyone can get behind that. Yeah, it definitely helps to have that in the, in the name. People will connect with it more. So you're a the director, but you've also been a longtime scientist. Are you still keeping up with research efforts as the director of the lab as well? Yeah, it's a little bit more of a balancing act. So I, you know, I would say that I used to spend a lot more time in sort of far-flung places, but um, <clears throat> I'm getting more in tune to the estuary and, and uh, you know, marine labs and field stations were all about what we call place-based research, natural history of the place where we are, um, and trying to connect people to that. So uh, I've been learning a lot more about San Francisco Bay and the estuary and the connections with our ocean. So that's great. So I wanted to dive in and talk about sandy beaches. A lot of us, when we visit the beach, we kind of plop down with our towel or our, our uh, chair or dive into the ocean. And it takes a careful observer to kind of notice other things going on. And there's so much going on in the rack line and below the sand and at different times of day. And so I was hoping we could talk a little bit about some of the things that not everybody might see at the beach. Yeah, you know, it's true. Probably for a lot of us, our first introduction to the ocean, if we're kids, you know, you go to the beach, right? You're with your family. You're running around, playing in the sand and the surf. Uh, you might notice some of the things that are that are creeping and crawling around or maybe nibbling at your toes if you're uh, in the water. But really um, – you know, beaches are kind of the orphan child of marine ecology in some ways. They represent like half of the coastline approximately here in California, give or take. Um, and yet, even as a scientist, people focus on the rocks, the tide pools, the organisms that you can see that are really obvious and big and have some charisma about them. Um, and it wasn't until I started working on um, the scientific planning, actually, for our marine protected areas networks uh, that, that California um, was really visionary about putting into place that we realized how little information we really had in a scientific sense about what the critters are that live on the beach, who uses the beach, um, and how important they are. So um, that was when I really got started looking at beaches was when we wanted to understand more about what, what are the, what's on the beach. Uh, we just put them into conservation areas. We had a little bit of uh, a challenge understanding them because we didn't have a lot of data. And so over the, the last few years, we've, we did a whole bunch of what were called baseline surveys to really understand who lives on the beaches and where. Um, so when you go to the beach, you're sitting on top of the sand and, and 
you know, you might not – you're not going to see all the critters that are there. But there are probably – you know, there could be 30, 50 different species of wow. marine – of invertebrates that are living in or under or on top of the sand uh, in the surf zone. There are zones where they live that go from the surf zone where it's swashy and the water is coming up and down all the way up into the sort of the higher and drier parts of the beach. You get a whole different set of animals. Um, and – you know they're not they're not just uh, sitting there sort of attached to the rocks the way they might be in tidepools or the rocky intertidal like mussels and barnacles that are clinging. Um, they actually move up and down with the tides. A lot of those organisms. So it's a very very dynamic habitat. The other thing is from spring to summer to fall to winter with the wave energy, their habitat moves right. So mm-hmm. the sand can actually get moved. It gets moved offshore into the sandbars in the winter. Comes back on in the summer, and some of those animals. Are, 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 you know, following those rhythms. So much more dynamic habitat than maybe uh, people had, had previously appreciated. Um, and if you're going to go study a beach, you're going to have to start digging. Uh, yeah. Not diving, but digging. Um, and you're going to have to start kind of uh, enjoying standing in the surf zone because one of the ways that we learned about who, who, who lives on the beach is to go take these cores. They're these aluminum um, tubes, if you will. You sort of jigger them into the sand. You pull them up and you sieve uh, animals out of the sand. And the studies that we did um, on Northern California alone, you know, each beach would probably sieve through like a metric ton of sand to kind of wow. get a sense of, you know, a good sample, how many animals are there. And um, um, those those animals include things like, you know, there's enormous number of crustaceans. So small things, probably if you're a kid, spent time on the beach in California, you hunted for sand crabs or mole crabs. They're very are, abundant right now. Those are super <laughs> abundant. Yeah. And um, uh, some years you got banner years of recruitment, right, or when you get a lot of babies coming onto the shore. Um, and they... Uh, they're really interesting. The females will brood uh, or hold on to a bunch of eggs, and eventually um, they'll release the um, the eggs in the, the little larvae, the mm-hmm. little tiny um, baby sand crabs, will go to sea. And they go, they go out to sea, and they're eating the zooplankton in the water and then um, and the phytoplankton in the water, and they're out for, for quite a long time. And then eventually, and they're ready to metamorphose and settle, they come back inshore, and they settle onto the beach. And they're tiny, tiny, tiny little microscopic uh, crabs that settle onto the beach. And then they grow up to, to complete their life cycle again. Um, but uh, I think it, you know, people don't even appreciate, right, that they're, that these animals have this epic journey. It's amazing. Right? How far offshore do those larvae travel? Do you think? Oh gosh, well they're they can, you know, you go out on a on a boat within the first sort of um, few hundred meters of the shoreline. They're definitely there, but they go up and down the coast quite mm-hmm. a ways. I don't know that I could give you an exact number, but they they definitely move. They're kind definitely of at the distributed. And yeah, wind. and you know, sometimes depending on the year, they'll their range will expand further north or contract further south, uh, depending on how strong the um, the ocean currents are or the upwelling might be in a given year. You might get more or less mm-hmm. of those um, those uh, larvae sort of making it back to shore. Um, so there's a lot of environmental push pull with the ocean conditions for those. Do surf scoters eat these sand crabs? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, that that they're they're really yummy. And as a matter of fact, uh, we find that a lot of the beaches that have more sand crabs 
uh, and more invertebrates in general tend to be places that attract more um, uh, seabirds and and especially shorebirds. So let's make it's, some things are clicking for me now because in the winter time um, out at Limantour Beach, oh yeah, there are a ton of surf scoters ha- kind of hanging out beyond the breakers, and I guess maybe they're diving down into the sandbar. That's area. certainly one of the the things that that they enjoy eating. Absolutely, yeah, they eat a couple different things yeah. too. Let's talk about the hoppers. There's all these hoppers oh. all over the beach. Oh, yeah. The beach is hopping. <laughs> I mean, and sometimes it's during the day. Sometimes it's night. And I see a real connection with what has washed up on the beach in terms of seaweed and algae. Yeah. I mean, the beaches are, are a great processing ecosystem, if you will. Um, they really connect the, the rocky reefs uh, to the beach, to the birds, um, and, uh, and it's through um, kelp in a lot of ways um, or other seaweeds, but the kelp is really the tasty thing. So you can get offshore kelp forests. Um, there's constantly getting uh, dislodged um, and they end up that ends up in the drift and, uh, and pushed on by the surf and the tide and deposited on the beach. And that's what you sometimes see on the rack line when you're walking along. You'll see these big um, deposits of, you know, kind of uh, tangled masses of seaweed and kelp. And if you, uh, and I'm sure some of you have done this, you know, if you go and you kind of pick it up, you'll yeah. all of a sudden see all these things hopping around and jumping underneath. Yeah. Um, and each of those sort of islands of kelp, and they are kind of like islands, become an attractant for um, what we call beach hoppers or um, their amphipods, uh, technical term. And um, they, um, they will come and feed on, on this delicious yummy kelp. Um, and they will also make burrows below it, um, and they hang out in the burrows to during the daytime. They're a little more active in the evening, um, and uh, when they're uh, and the females even will make burrows where they um, when they are brooding their young. Um, and so it's a very important uh, place for them. It's both both a home and food. And their home is always moving because every time the tide comes in, it picks up that mass of seaweed and moves it around, right? So they've gotten really good at um, – they kind of come up. Uh, and they'll they'll move around to different piles, and if they're older, they might not be as tasty, right? So they they have all kinds of perceptions of these piles that we we don't even imagine. And this is prey for a lot of shorebirds. Oh right? my God, these are um, so incredibly important uh, food for for our shorebirds. As a matter of fact, if you look at um, the uh, how abundant these little um, amphipod tilitrid amphipod crustaceans are, um, it can predict. Uh, how many shorebirds you're likely to see at a beach, and in fact, how many different kinds of shorebirds are likely to visit that beach. So um, they really are important to the ecology of the beach, taking, you know, transferring fuel from the ocean uh, into the skies um, effectively. That's right? amazing. So we've been experiencing like historic kelp loss this year, yeah. or the last few years in California. And seen a lot less drift on the beach of, of bull kelp specifically up in this region. And what type of impact? I mean, I guess, is it just loss of overall decomposers of those amphipods and, and then less shorebirds to feed on them? It's it's kind of all interrelated, right? Yeah. I You know, um, this is one of those times where you, you wish you had the resources to go back out and repeat some of the studies that you had done during a time when the conditions are really, really different. Mm-hmm. Um, you would certainly predict that the loss of this uh, incredibly tasty and energetic um, energy supplying um, subsidy to the beaches would have an impact. Um, On the other hand, um, 
amphipods are, are it's not the only thing they'll eat, right? Mm-hmm. So these guys are pretty um, pretty scrappy, um, and they will eat other seaweeds. Uh, they're known even um, they they're known even to eat paper. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now, I'm not saying they're going to, you know, be as abundant. I would predict they'd be probably uh, somewhat less abundant, but um, um, they're probably there. And the shorebirds, you know, there are other um, things for them to eat, and there are other kinds of resources that might form habitat and food for some of these amphipods. But really, you know, we don't know, right? We haven't studied mm-hmm. them enough to know. Resilience. Yeah, but I would, I would, I would predict uh, as probably, um, especially if it persists for many years which is, I think, what we're worried about, yeah. um, given the changing ocean conditions, the impact of climate change. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the loss of, of kelp on the north coast. Um, our kelp, the Nereocystis, which is the one you're likely to see more of, the bull kelp on our beaches, it's an annual. So imagine you have two, three, four years in a row of, of unfavorable conditions. That's going to have a really big impact. Because um, they reproduce concerned. with spores, right? Yeah. So if you don't have spores around, there's not a lot of yeah. growth. Yeah. I mean, there are these um, – uh, there are certainly these uh, little refugia where there are you know places where kelp exists, and we hope that's the resilience that will bring them back. But um, we're facing this this really dramatic shift in the ecosystem right now. I was talking with some folks up on the north. I was up in Puerto Rio this weekend and talking with some folks. And it seems like there are some pockets that are surviving. And it's because they are in areas that urchins can't get to. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are certain little habitats Mm -hmm. that are these little uh, areas where the the urchins can't get to them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And we'll see. We'll have to see some of of the, you know, some of the bigger red urchins are are starving because there's not enough kelp and they're coming into the intertidal. The abalone fishery is not doing well. The abalone populations are not doing well either. Well, I wanted to also ask. So I know in Southern California, they do a lot of beach raking. And I Ah, think probably in other parts of the United States as well to make it more... um, appetizing, I guess, for humans. But what type of ecological impact does that have, taking away all that life? Yeah. I mean, uh, my colleague, Jenny Dugan uh, from UC Santa Barbara, has done um, most of the research in Southern California on beaches. And she's actually done some pretty amazing experiments uh, together with um, the folks who who are doing the grooming of the beaches and compared beaches where they groom them and not. And yeah, you remove that kelp and you lose the diversity of, of uh, insects and amphipods and crustaceans that inhabit those little island piles, if you will, and you get fewer birds. So um, it's a, got to strike a balance there. Yeah. Um, probably, uh, you know, not every... People don't want to lie on smelly piles of kelp. Forget it. But yeah. um, we got we got to kind of balance our our human needs with uh, with nature. This is just having a visual back to talking about your cores. Did you do cores up on the beach as well into the sand? Oh yeah. So give us a quick little cross section going down, like I guess two feet. Like what do you see from the surface air, sand, and and then going down a little bit deeper. Well, it kind of, you know, it's going to do, it's more a cross section sort of a, across the beach, okay. I would say. Um, so up on the, on the, on the high shore, you're going to get a lot of the, um, the amphipods. You'll get some of these, um, um, insects that are, that are endemic. They're only found on beaches. Um, includes beetles that, that may be predatory, um, uh, and things like that. Maybe kelp flies and their larvae on those, some of those, uh, rack piles. Um, as you come sort of to the middle of the beach, you're going to have a lot more of what we call isopods, a different kind of crustacean. 
um, and they tend to be fairly abundant. There are several species. Some of them even tend to nibble your toes and things. I've had that <laughs> happen. probably had that happen. Um, as you go lower down on the shore, you're going to start seeing more of the sand crabs, uh, some of the mollusks. Um, uh, olive snails are one of the predatory um, um, snails that live in the sand. Um, and then obviously like you're going to start seeing a lot more worms um, and, uh, and, and things like that. So – um, yeah, that's kind of the zoning, right? Yeah. And I imagine the type of substrate influences what's in the oh water, my. too. I mean, you know, at Limtor, I sometimes see really rough type rocks when the tide's really low, and it's so much rougher than other areas, which are really, really fine sand. So I guess that influences what's there, yeah. too. Yeah, there's a whole, I mean, yeah, I could wax poetic for a while about sand and the qualities of sand. Um, we uh, certainly find a huge correlation between, or huge association, if you will, between the size of the sand grains and who lives in them. Mm -hmm. So when the sand is um, very coarse, uh, it usually means that the wave energy is high on that beach. Um, and uh, uh, it's hard for certain animals to live in that environment. It's very dynamic. It's, it, they're getting rubbed. And, and, and it's just it's, it's, a, it's a challenging place to live. Um, you find far more on uh, the beaches that um, have uh, what we call kind of like dissipative shorelines, like there's a lot of wide surf zone and mm -hmm. you get a lot of fine sand up on the beach and uh, and they just have um, a lot more ways to um, – it's, it's a more comfortable habitat. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and that changes seasonally too, right? The beaches right. tend to get a bit shorter in the winter because more wave action takes sand away, right? Yeah. Sometimes, uh, sometimes the sand can be completely – or almost completely removed so you're down to like cobbles or even sometimes some uh, – uh, bedrock, and then the sand comes back on. A lot of these animals are adapted to that. Like I said, the sand crabs, they tend to live a few years, um, and the adults are often out in the um, uh, will get pulled out into the sandbar, so they travel with their habitat. Mm -hmm. um, and I suspect uh, some of the other worms and things do too. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Up on the higher on the beach, you know, up in the dunes and things, uh, some of those animals that um, live on the upper beach will just sort of move up shore to get a little bit out of the fray of, of the winter weather. Um, so they'll they'll stay they'll stay uh, intact there. Um, so you know, just depends where that, you are, who you are. That sounds great. One last question. Can you just tell us a little bit about how people could get more involved with the Estuary and Ocean Science Center? I know you do a lot of public lectures and invite scientists to come and give forums, and they're open to the public. Can you share a little bit about this? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, on August 23rd, we're starting up our uh, film ocean film series again with uh, in collaboration with the International uh, Ocean Film Festival. We've got a double feature coming up with... Um, Two great films. You can go to our website, uh, uh, eocenter.sfsu.edu, uh, and you can learn all about them. Um, we also have um, on November 7th, uh, and we haven't started advertising this yet, but we do our fall public forum. It's an evening program. We have a very special guest coming, and I think your your um, listeners will be interested. Jane Lubchenko, uh, former uh, head administrator of NOAA. We liked her. Um, and uh, <laughs> under the Obama administration. So she's going to be coming and talking to us uh, wow. that evening. So something to look forward to. To keep your eyes out, and we'll be, uh, well, you know, you can get signed up on our mailing list if you go to That's our webpage. Great. And there are also some social media too on Twitter. Oh, yeah, we're on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram. But yeah, it, it'll be up. So That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Karina, we're out of time, sadly. I have a few announcements, but any last things you want to share about beach ecology and what? 
people should know about the beach and how to treat the beach? Well, I would just, the last thing is, you know, it's got great natural history. It's also of incredible economic importance to our coastal communities. And I would say that one of the things we're really worried about um, is sea level rise and co- what we call coastal squeeze and, and yeah. kind of the, the the incremental loss of beaches that we're going to have up against development uh, or, or due to, you know, people trying to armor the shoreline. So uh, save the beaches. Uh, think about climate change. This is, it's coming. It's real. We've got to do something about it. Um, I think that's the biggest conservation push I can suggest for the oceans is um, we've got it. We've got to mitigate and adapt to climate change. And some involved. of it's coming. Some yeah. of it's coming, but some of it we got to push back on as best we can. That's great. Well, thank yeah. you so much. I really appreciate you coming in. And I wanted to share, too, with listeners that um, locally here, you can really take a dive into this uh, beach ecology in Point Reyes National Seashore because August 26th is the annual 37th annual sand sculpture contest at Drake's Beach. So you can get up close and personal with all these critters. Um, that Karina was mentioning. And you just also wanted to mention... I just also wanted to mention, if you want to come out and help uh, us understand the beaches better, join the Beach Watch program. Come out and help us uh, study the beaches. There's a huge group of volunteers that work through the sanctuaries, through that program, and that's an awesome opportunity to learn more about beaches. Absolutely. The Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary. I think they're celebrating their 20th year or 25th year of Beach Watch this year, where their volunteers are monitoring the beaches. And an absolutely awesome program, for sure. Great data source. Well, thank you. I know we could probably talk another hour about more beach stuff, but we're running out of time here. So thanks again for being here. Thank you so much. Pleasure. So I do have a couple other announcements here to share. And um, the films are really all over the place. We all work with the International Ocean Film Festival, which gives you an idea of just how fantastic these films are. And, you know, they've definitely been educative to me where it's helped me identify topics to bring on the show with you. I first heard about... The sunscreen issue by seeing a film at the International Ocean Film Festival. So I wanted to share that. Um, So in addition to the films that the Estuary and Ocean Science Center are doing at SF State, August 23rd, um, locally here in West Marin, the Hog Island Oyster Company are doing some ocean film nights, also in partnership with the International Ocean Film Festival to celebrate their anniversary. I think it's their 25th year. I'm sorry, all these anniversaries, I'm getting confused. But they are celebrating an anniversary and they're drawing people out to the farm to show some films. And all proceeds are actually going to help ocean-related causes with each film. First one, uh, second one is August 18th. We just had one back in July. But August 18th is the film Straws, which is pretty self-explanatory. And it's all about the crazy plastic straw Um, issue that we have of this single-use plastic and some really great storytelling there and some wonderful opportunities for action. Um, September 22nd is Blue Serengeti, which is all about the white shark research happening around here down in Monterey. I just saw this film this weekend. It was so awesome. So if you want to learn more about those out here, go to hogislandoysters.com and click on news for all the details. And again, all proceeds from those tickets go to ocean-related causes associated with each film. And if you want to get involved with your local National Marine Sanctuary, so Cordell Bank and Greater Farallons, they surround this Point Reyes National Seashore area going all the way up to Point Arena. And one of the ways these National Marine Sanctuaries help manage is by um, consulting with the public. And we have a Sanctuary Advisory Council that is made up of different constituents to participate in helping to provide advice to the sanctuary management and superintendent. 
And they meet quarterly, and it's a really great cross-section of people that care about the ocean from conservation and research to maritime activities to fishing to community at large, education. And both the Cordell and the Greater Farallons councils are recruiting new applicants for their councils. So you can go to cordellbank.noaa.gov backslash council backslash applicants for information about the Cordell positions and farallons.noaa.gov to learn about the Farallons seats. And these are applications that are being um, collected till the end of August. I think August 24th and August 31st. I'm not sure why those are different dates for each sanctuary, but take a look soon. And we have a couple community members that are part of that here. Uh, George Clyde in Marshall has been part of the Greater Farallons Council and the Cordell Council. And Leslie Adler-Ivenbrook is also another person and many others. So talk to them if you're interested in learning more. We're about out of time here. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month at a new time, 11 o'clock to 12 And you can hear past episodes through my podcast, which is available at cordellbank.noaa.gov or in iTunes. And if you happen to listen in iTunes, please leave a review so we know you're listening and we can help uh, grow the the growth of people hearing about the Ocean Currents program. I love hearing from listeners. If you have ideas for topics or questions, comments, you can email me at cordellbank at noaa.gov. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the ocean bay or whatever body of water you get into safely. Check your sunscreen and tell others about that. We need to to help spread the word about this issue. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin, KWMR. Thanks for tuning in. For listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Dot